Hello friends, how you doing? It's Matt and you listen to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. Yeah, it's my podcast where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning in, I hope you enjoy this one. Before I get started, just thanks uh, to everybody who got in touch to let me know how rough I sounded at the last intro, which was, um, I'll be honest, I did record it extremely hungover in my effort to beat the Olympic deadline. Um, and I'm glad a few people picked up on that because it was, uh, yeah, it was a tough day, that one. And uh, clearly my efforts to disguise that in the intro did not work in the slightest. So yeah, feeling a little bit better today. So hopefully a little bit sprightlier with this one. So episode 34, I believe. I'm going to check actually because I keep getting it wrong because there's been that many of them. Whatever episode it is, uh, my guest today is the great... Yeah, it is episode 34, I've just checked. Um, anyway, it might well be my favourite episode, this. Certainly one of the most enjoyable conversations I've yet had. Um, so see what you think. But yeah, that's because my guest for this one really is a true legend of the snowboarding world. It's the great David Benedict. So for the uninitiated, who is David Benedict? Well, for 10 years, Benedict bestrode the global snowboarding scene like a creative colossus, really. From the minute he burst onto the the wider scene with a podium place at the Air and Style in 99, swiftly followed by the opening section in TB10, here was a progressive, inspiring snowboarder who could do it all with style grace, and the creativity that seemed to define the very best of what snowboarding had to offer. And amazingly, he continued to do that at an incredible level for the next 10 years. Look back at David's CV, and what you've got is a roll call of some of the noughties defining snowboarding moments. You've got the robot food years with Afterbang, Lame, and his sections therein. You've got the 91 words for snow blank paper projects. You've got the double cork gap years plenty more really if you do a bit of digging and yet there will be stuff on the show notes if you want to find out more anyway then with seeming abruptness he stepped back from professional snowboarding at the end of his 20s which was at the time yet another forward thinking move not for david years spent eking out a living or rinsing the industry for all he could instead he left professional snowboarding on his own terms and embarked upon yet another insanely ambitious creative project, the book Current State, in which he interviewed countless influential snowboarders and uh, pioneers of the scene, and also came up with this ridiculously creative and ambitious format, which presumably gave the printers behind the, behind the book a nosebleed when they saw the flat plan, which is something I did mention to him during the conversation. And yeah, it took a few years over that, and the book came out to great acclaim, and then we didn't really hear from him again. The last time I personally saw him was three years ago at a party in Munich when he explained he was at film school and he was working as creative director at an agency in the town. You get the point. Here was undoubtedly one of the most interesting career arcs in snowboarding or in any other action sport, if you ask me. Now, I've known David since the start of his career, having first met him in about 1999, 2000. And although we've never seen each other that often, we've always got on really well. So I was really pleased when he agreed to catch up in Munich at the end of January 2018 to come on the show. And as you're going to hear, it was quite a chat, this one. Of course, we covered some of the obvious stuff. You know, we did talk about afterbang, robot food. We did talk about how he got into snowboarding. But really, this one is a roving, freewheeling, all-encompassing conversation in the finest looking sideways tradition, really. And I had a feeling it'd go like this. So I just turned up without a set list of questions or any desire to steer the conversation in any particular direction, hit record and sat back to see where it went. And as you're going to hear, he's a very, very bright and articulate man, David, frighteningly so when you consider English is not his first language, with the carefully backed up opinions on all manner of subjects. In this case, we cover the powerful sway of American culture, the pain of growing up, how creativity works, the emotional dullness of being an adult compared to a child, where you find flow in everyday life, the fundamental illusion of certain signs and symbols and plenty more weighty, fascinating stuff. As you're going to be able to tell, we had a great time recording this one. 
And yeah, having recorded all this intro, I think on reflection, it is definitely one of my favourite chats of all the ones I've been lucky enough to have so far. So enough from me. Get the headphones on. Well, you probably already got them on, but you know what I mean. Grab a brew. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with David Benedict, snowboarding's great connector. Enjoy. Is that, is that, does that work? Is that yeah, cool? totally, totally. I just need to... Let me just uh, turn it up a little bit. I'm going to record it on uh, Logic as well. Just had a few disasters <coughs> doing this over the months. Like lost one. I and, feel you, yeah. Yeah. Of course, did you, did you, you tell the person that you lose it? Well, it was actually uh, James Stentiford, who you probably know, who's like a yeah. re- really good friend. So he was pretty cool with it. So did you redo it or no? Yeah, I redid it. Yeah, wow. um, and he was uh, he was cool with it. Yeah, um, but I, you know, redoing is hard for the energy. It's like yeah, I almost need to talk about something totally different. Yeah, exactly. Because you did. I mean, you must have done what like twenty five for for current state. Yeah, I only really blew one. Right, and this is something that um, I never told him, but I met. Um, just place it there. I met, yeah, yeah, sit up there. Actually, no, I'll be fine. There we go. Um, do you know Bob Klein? You know who that is? Yeah, I know Bob. He's the agent and he's like the old school, yeah. kind of like so came up with Kid Wild. He was he? really, really cool and he like hooked me up with Palmer and, right. and I interviewed him as well because I thought it would be nice to have an agent in there. Yeah. Uh, he's and, like proper seen it all, hasn't he, Bob, you know? Yeah. And after like two hours of talking, like I remember like hitting my iPhone. And just seeing that it's like the count says zero 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 zero, so right, it either froze or something. Never, and I just took it. I was like, "Thanks." Right, <laughs> and I just never told him that. You didn't tell him. I didn't tell him because I wasn't sure. Actually, I, I I think I knew while I did it. I was like, "This is great input that I will feed into all the other ones," but I don't think it will be a standalone interview. So I kind of knew, maybe right there, that I wasn't going to use it. Right. But and maybe I, I also that confirmed it. That that, <laughs> that confirmed that I didn't have an option, you were and like, I knew. Yeah, I might, might not use you know, one. and I was yeah. really, really uh, how do you say, it? like you know, like appreciative of his time and stuff. And yeah. so when I saw it, I was like, "That's nothing I can say right now." No, no, to, you can't I, say to somebody. So like, I never told him. I, I hope we're not jinxing this one, yeah. by the way. But um, yeah, you can't you can't say like, yeah, all right, that didn't actually record. You know, um, I did one uh, where I did it walking around carrying the mic and we'd done about five minutes and I realized only my mic was working and his mic hadn't been working cool. um kind of got away with that one but yeah hence the double recording yeah, strategy I, now since then doing the same thing to yeah. like old iphone regular iphone i mean because i don't need the audio I, yeah, yeah i didn't need it back then so sure I just used it for transcribing yeah so. So we were just saying before we started recording, I think the last time we saw each other was three years ago at ISPO. So that's got to be right, hasn't it? And you were, so you were at film school and you were doing the creative, the creative director at the agency, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what, where, where are we at now? Are you, is that what you're still doing? Or? Um, that's what I'm still doing, although not at that agency. Okay. It's, um, that was my friend's agency and, and I mean, they're, Pretty big. They, have, I don't know. They're, I think they're about twenty-five employees or something. So that was quite a. And I think um, coming from what I did, which was anything I did, was more like lock yourself into a room and it's done when it's done. Yeah. You know, and especially also looking at the book. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, but if you just sit down and you just just wait until it's done until you figure it out, then. I was able to do that. And yeah, it looks like you've, that's kind of how you've like working over the years, like have an idea and then work out how you're going to like achieve it basically. Yeah. So that didn't quite gel with the yeah, agency. I think, I think, yeah, I think essentially it comes down to craft because, yeah. you know, anything like words or images or anything, you know, uh, that's also something I, I think I um, realized clearly in film school is that anything is really a craft and it's it's painful until you've, I think it it's it always kind of stays painful yeah. in the sense that it's you're always uh, fighting against your own inability, no matter on which level. I'm sure if you're really good at something, it's still 
fighting, but um, there's a certain there's a so, certain I don't know like uh, threshold or whatever that if you don't make it past that, it's a lot of fighting. And I think I I a lot of times I'm like underneath that, but I can take the time to still have a result I'm happy with. And then that was quite the experience in the agency to figure out like, okay, so this is a pace. This is the real pace. Yeah. This is the pace of the real world. The commercial pace. Yeah. And also, especially, I think um, I was kind of caught between the chairs of still wanting to design stuff and actually be hands-on and, um, but having to direct, you know, okay. really. And right. so I, I think in the middle of all that, I realized it's, uh, I don't know, I, I, I think it did it pretty full time, pretty much full time for about a year and a half or two years. And then I kind of slowly, you know, reduced my time there and I started doing my own projects again. And, and, um, and so that's what I'm doing now. I'm basically, I'm kind of doing the same thing, which is like, you know, corporate designs and, and, and so brand and, and brand and design work yeah. basically. Um, but I do it, you know, with a small group of freelancers and, I have my own clients and yeah, and eventually I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe that will pan out into an actual agency type of thing, but yeah, it might also not. Yeah, I yeah. mean, in, in the creative world, people, they tend to throw around buzzwords and one of the most recent ones is that we might be in the post-agency age because, <laughs> I mean, literally what agencies facilitated, I think, up to now was the access to the right creative people, which has begun, has gotten so much easier yeah. that, you know, it's, that's not all. I'm not saying that, that that's uh, assumptions necessarily correct that we're in that age, but it's something that I think clients are buying, which is why I can do jobs that I find interesting without needing like a back end of like 15 employees or something, you know? Yeah. And the kind of collateral that comes with that as well. Exactly. I mean, that's, I'm Which sure we, you guys work similarly, right? It's real. Yeah. I mean, we're a pretty small team, but it's interesting because it sounds like for you that enables you to, to focus on the, the creative work, you know, which is obviously what you're interested in because yeah, once you start going down that, that route, then you, you have, more things to do that, that detract from the creative side, don't you? Which sounds yeah. like that, that might have been the, the thing in the agency he, path that you didn't quite... Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, actually, because I kind of have... It's really, it's such a, it's such a weird... Um, creativity is such a... I mean, just the, just the description of creativeness and... and I'm not entirely sure if, uh, if I'm even like an actually like particularly creative person because I'm, I don't really enjoy like coming up with new ideas. I enjoy connecting things or, and maybe even more like compiling things. So everything, I've, and I realized like in retrospect, everything I've always done is only compile things. I don't really create. Occasionally I give it a form, but I'm not really someone who's like, I'm not an artist or that, anything. That's yeah? as valid though, I always think. I mean, that's how a lot of artists work. I mean, if you look at somebody, do you know Jeremy Della, the artist? Mm -hmm. He's a Turner Prize win winner and he, he, he works in a really similar way, you know, has an idea and then finds the people to execute the idea and, and is a facilitator as well. But I, I, I think it's valid. You know, I think the idea of like creativity being like the artist in the garret, you know, like coming up with the, 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 yeah. the spark of inspiration. Yeah. For, I, I, the older I get them, I just think it's, a, it's the work, isn't it? It's actually doing the work. Yeah, I think, I think it, that's, that's, it's like uh, the banality of actually sitting down and doing something and like empowering through all this shit that in the end might end up with something decent. Um, yeah, but... I'm not. I think I might be totally okay if I wasn't a creative person. Like if that if that definition didn't apply, I'm I'm totally cool. I, and I totally agree. I think this aura of the artist or this like um, the value or so, that society puts on the artist and on this free spirited thinking. I think it's also partially because like like people love the idea of a genius of people. Because fucking life's so confusing, you know, I, we all wish there was someone out there who knew what they were doing. It'd be terrifying to find out that all these, like, legends don't have a fucking idea, you know? But it's probably true. It's probably true. And I think, um, I don't know, but I, I do, I have, do have to say, I, I struggle immensely with, like, creative pressure. Like, well, that was going to be my next question because 
what you said earlier was really interesting because you were you were talking about you know what the way I define it was you have an idea then you find a way of doing it and you work it out and you can look at that throughout your career you know whether it was like making films producing making books like you know all these things that you've done but that takes a lot of either like ignoring the inner voice of self self doubt yeah. or or a lot of confidence <laughs> you know to actually think I'm just going to do that yeah. and I'm going to work it out is that is that something that comes easy to you no I think and and now like um maybe like having exited this bubble of inflated self-confidence that comes with being an, like an athlete that's just like I mean this is uh, something I, I've, I've talked quite a lot about with like my, my friends and also like former also former pro snowboarder friends how funny it is that you know like normally I think when you grow up um, as a teenager or as a kid you have this um, this like dream in your head that you're something like incredibly unique you know everyone has and and I think you know of course I don't want to say I mean, we're all unique and all this but I think everyone wishes that there would, was something you know and then I think most of the time you have to kind of and this is I think the painful act of growing up is exactly. like you have to you have to realize it's growing up yeah. it's, it, that's what growing up is is, yeah. is is maybe like leaving those dreams behind and saying like hey I'm kind of just like everyone else yeah and we and we just have to sit down and just do it and yeah. and that's cool and then I think maybe working through the pain of of that realization and the problem is but what happened to me and to like all the other these pros numbers you're like 16 and suddenly like you're getting validation you that you get, are special. You, exactly. You're getting, <laughs> you're getting like 200% validation. Yeah. And, and I think, um, so maybe that growing up part, it comes afterwards, you know, yeah. and maybe, maybe even more painfully than, I don't know. Uh, um, but yeah, so I was laughing about that a lot. And, and, but I mean, of course, you know, like, uh, when you, your question was about like this, 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 uh, absence of doubt and yeah, you know, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to make the best book in the world. And then, of course, I stumbled along the way and it was painful and, and super, a lot of work. But had I gone to, for instance, like graphic design school, I would have never dared to make something like that because the people next to me wouldn't dare to make something like that. So why should I? And so that's, that was a huge difference in doing something that still came out of this like totally, total denial of, of the rest of the world. And just I basically locked myself in a room and 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 did this and I kind of that's how I worked before and then going to film school was kind of like it was almost like ego exorcism you know you go there and and I think I'm a fairly grounded guy so when I when I meet my fellow students I'm like I'm like a part of the pack but that also means that I apply their rules to my work which also means that of course suddenly I don't think I'm going to make the best film in the world I just think I'm just going to make, you know, just a normal student film. Like yeah. that, that's the, that's the horizon that I then subscribe to. And I noticed the difference that, that, um, yeah. Did it affect the work? Yeah, massively, I think. In what way? I, I think, um, in the way that I think no matter what you do creatively, especially in an, I think it, it applies to everything, but I think it's very easily visible in narrative form um such as uh, um, like fictional film the every story has been told already a hundred times over the only thing you can you can add is if you give it your personal point of view and not trying to replicate um you know something that you think is en vogue or or you know if you're really good at replicating that could totally work but it, it won't be original yeah you won't be original and i think um that's what happened like i remember it's a fairly like renowned film school, and so I knew, I knew some of the stuff that came out of there, and I always thought it's kind of weird how, like, you know, like pseudo intellectual and really like dark and heavy and slow and like, like dramatic. Everything that came out of there was, and like ten months into it, my stuff looked exactly the same. Right. Like, I mean, I'm not kidding. The first film I did was about was about um, a girl struggling with bulimia who, <laughs> who goes back to her parents' place for birthday party. Like, and I, I, at least I'm mean, going to have to say that it's, it's but I, I still have to like, like just smirk about the fact that that's me. Um, 
in reality, I worked with someone on the script that had a very personal connection to that topic. So I was like, okay, this is great. I find this really interesting. I can, you know, this is like more like the paint that I'm working with. Yeah. But it's still, it's it's not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily me. It was like trying to fit in with what was expected. And so, um, yeah, so I think there's a huge difference between, you know, uh, ignoring your limitations and the world around you. And, and, and I'm not entirely sure which one's better. I still think, like, I feel most comfortable when I'm in my room. I mean, I have a home office, you know, I sit here. I'm much more comfortable here than, than I am in like, I, I used to rent like office space and stuff because suddenly you're in the real world. And yeah. I, I kind of like- You prefer the, that to like locking yourself away if yeah. you like. Does that, does that enable you to do the work? Because a lot of it as well, I think is, is about giving yourself permission in, in how you're going to do it and, and yeah. thinking about what's actually going to work best for me here. Sounds like that's what you've, you've, yeah. you're almost working out when, you, when you're making these decisions, really. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think it really is trying to ignore like that, you know, also the fact that you might not be able, you, you, you might, might not be at a point where you should be doing a corporate design for a big corporation because, you know, like I had never done that before or something. And it's much easier to do that if you're, in your room and you can kind of convince yourself like yeah. it's good you know that's totally fine yeah give yourself permission to, to be good enough almost. yeah you know and so um but essentially i think i mean the goal should be to be able to be out there and still be able to create you know because i think that essentially would uh that would be actual self-confidence you know in what you do so so what are you working on right now um, right now, so I'm actually, I'm still, so, so I fit, I actually went back after the agency, I actually went back to film school and just finished, finished everything besides my kind of final project. And, and actually, I think maybe for the first time since I, since I went there, um, I'm writing something that I think is kind of mine. So, okay. so I'm writing a screenplay. Ideally, 50% of the time and 50% of the time I'm doing like the brand and design work. Yeah. But realistically, I'm doing 90% of work and then 10% um, of writing. Um, but yeah, so the work stuff is um, kind of all sorts of uh, all sorts of brand strategy and design work. So it's last big project that it was for a, um, like a hotel corporation. Like they, they're one of the biggest in Germany and they um, created a new brand, like a sub, like a, they branched off a brand. Sure. And, um, and it started out with just like, you know, uh, coming up with, you know, the actual, um, uh, the logo and the font and, you know, start out with everything that is corporate design, which is like, um, uh, you know, the image style, the, and once we did that, and they opened their first hotel, I ended up doing um, everything from like even the, like signage design in the in the hotel, the website. Uh, and I even have like a, a text like copywriters working for me. So it's basically I, I, I act as the agency, even though, you know, everyone are just like friends and 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 people from my network. Yeah, that I work with. So. And what about the the screenplay? Is that is that well the screenplays by the sound of it is that? Well, it's one. It's but you and again you you're self taught. I take it. Did you you, you taught, or did you study that? At, is that one of the things you learned at the film school? Um, like that form. I mean, I did study fictional directing, um, so that would be a part of it. And and what they teach kind of or what they, the film the the school is really about like um, like about directors as authors, like not only as like a craft craftsmen craftsmen that uh i mean you can you know people couple people certainly you know they don't really uh, realize their own scripts but i think mostly people out of that school they also write and direct yeah and um funny odd enough it's something that they should be teaching and i think they probably are if you're taking the right classes i really Everything I learned about writing, I think I learned actually from books. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
um, which is not a whole lot, which is also due to the fact that I think um, the structure of a screenplay is fairly simple, actually. Yeah, it's pretty formulaic, isn't yeah. it? Like three-act structure. Yeah, and it's it's like, I mean, they broke it down like a science. Like you can you can put it... You can plot it to the minute, basically, it's, can't you? It's ridiculous. And yeah. it's really funny when you... when you. I used to be kind of anti these formulaic approaches. Yeah. But then you you look at even films that in my mind really fall out of this like mainstream uh constructed way and every film that works pretty much fits within within that formula. Yeah. You know? Insight and incident like the the beats in certain minutes, it's isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah. It's and and it's really funny now that like I'm aware of the, where the beats, you know, where's the the break between the different acts and what's supposed, you know, and there's like the false victory here and then etc yeah. etc. Et and you um, look at movies and I usually don't think about this kind of stuff if a movie's good, but if a movie suddenly like I kind of I'm out of it, I instantly notice like oh they kind of this is where they they veered off the yeah you know the the formula and it's really and it's kind of or, or it's clumsy like a yeah cl- or it's clumsy clumsy joins and crowbarring and those elements I mean it's brilliant when you see a film that does it really artfully isn't it you know yeah that that you like you say that you don't notice it and does sort of because the whole idea is obviously to take you on an emotional exactly um, journey isn't it I think yeah um, so obviously it's a few years since you did anything specifically around snowboarding it probably was the book right and that must be what is that 10 years ago now no less no it's less with 2018 i think the book i think it says it's weird i can only remember because i think it says it came out uh january or february 2012 okay but That's you worked on it for like three or four three years, years yeah, yeah pretty much three years so it's um current state the book is i should say and i will link to to this did you did you sell them all yeah yeah, you I only got, did it. You only did it quite a limited run, though, didn't you? Yeah, I. I mean, uh, I did two thousand copies, which which was quite the investment um, because the production co- uh, cost was so high. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's it. Wasn't really. Uh, I would have liked to make more, but um, I realized, you know, that like basically, that was qu- quite the quite the investment up front, and then took me took me a little while to sell them. I mean. It's really funny with books, um, and this is, I guess, supposedly it's. You might know this. Supposedly, this is like a rule: you sell half of your copy, no matter what. I mean, if your circulation is somewhat on par with your audience, supposedly you sell half of your circulation in one month, the next quarter in a year, and the next quarter in. I don't know, three years. I and think this is exactly what happened to me. I think if it's going well, I mean, I think that's the, the, the business model of, of the publishing world, isn't it? Basically, you know, they yeah. kind of, I mean, I've been lucky enough to have a few books published and I think the first one that I had published probably still not paid its advance back, to be honest, you know, like <laughs> didn't exactly set the charts on fire. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite a conservative business model, isn't it, really? Because like you say, the the costs are so high and, yeah. you know, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to do get it out and difficult to do it well, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I think why I was so impressed that you did it all on your own, though, because that was that was because you self published, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I I um, was approach, that... approached a couple of people and then realized pretty quickly that my ideas didn't really fit within um, their commercial ambitions. You know, I'm sure. Once we... they took a look at the, the, the flat plan, <laughs> yeah, that was funny because like, they were like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Pretty big German publishing house that. Um, had previously published um, like biographies, you know, like like I don't know, football biographies and stuff. Like they approached me when they heard about it, right? And I think I, I lined it out in an email to them, like what I was planning. And I think I never, they, I never even heard back from Didn't them reply. again. Yeah, it's pretty ambitious. Yeah. So, and then I had a Japanese publishing house that I think at least they wanted to to I think maybe a third of the of the circulation they wanted to just buy it straight off for and and um which is also why i went through the pain of having a full japanese translation and everything and then they they jumped ship like like last minute well i didn't know that and right. and um yeah so yeah i mean so i mean publishing as far as doing it myself was concerned it it wasn't really in much 
other than like finding a facilitator that like has a storage and his shipping technology or you know hooked up to um, to my to the book's website. Yeah, and that sure. was pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, yeah, these days you can you can self publish like really easily, can't you? you yeah, know, with the, I think so. With fulfillment and all and all these. That's things. exactly what it was. Yeah. So, with, do you look back on? With your, you know, with your new perspective and the new experience that you've got, have you, are you tempted to do another snowboarding project? I've seen that's a question you get asked quite a lot, really, because I've been doing some research and seeing, um, you know, would yeah. you do another film? You know, yeah. like. <laughs> um, so I think actually, I mean, I would like to, I would like to do a follow up to Current State. Like yeah. that'd be something that I thought about, like pretty much right after another book. Yeah, but the actually, scars have healed. Um, <laughs> Maybe yeah, it took a, probably took a good year. Yeah, for me to. Um, but I actually thought about kind of in this um, approaching the electronic digital medium in the, with the same um, naiveness that I approached the book with. Like that would be something I'd be excited to do. Right. Like, maybe do a digital version that's updated. That's kind of you know combined with with film. Kind of what you know, maybe with a podcast, but something that like really um, com combines um, the multimedia capabilities of, say, like an iPad magazine sure. or something. Yeah. It's still mind-boggling to me that there's not really much happening in that space. Because yeah, especially when you look at kind of like um, Kindle. For example, mm -hmm. just like that format, it's just so one-dimensional, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's strange to me because I think, um, well, it's really not that strange because I kind of think that everyone's still kind of waiting. I, everyone's in this, in this, in this, in this um, waiting period and seeing of who comes up with a good solution because um, it's super expensive, you know. Yeah. So, and you're not. And if I look at, like, for instance, the the newspaper, I I have a weekly newspaper subscription, and they have an iPad app. So I have bo I have both, and and the iPad apps just they, they just suck. Yeah, you know? they're, it's they're, like they're really bad. It's a beefed up PDF, and occasionally there's like sound bites in there. And maybe maybe there might be a little piece of um, motion, in, like uh, moving moving pictures, but. To really look at it as this new format of being able to um, have one consistent kind of narrative, like what a magazine used to do. Yeah. That's kind of, I kind of, it's weird to me that no one picked up on the format of the magazine. And I, I remember, you might remember this, um, I think it's still around a little bit, but it never picked up is um, the first like digital magazines that you know you could I don't know what they were called like you could like flip through them but you know then the ad would have like a video yeah and but it was actually it was at least it had the same um like uh how you how, how could you say that um like a, a closedness you know you you have a compact format that has a beginning yeah and an end Had a coherence like a narrative coherence yeah. and it's and and it's something that yeah certainly you could update it afterwards but it's something that doesn't isn't as bottomless as a as a website where you scroll and it just relinks you to the next article. I, th I find that to be the biggest um, obstacle of like digital consumption is the bottomlessness. I get so irritated by that I, that I, I'd rather read. It's funny. I have both. I have my iPad with a newspaper and I have the physical one here. I always read the physical one because. I know. I look at it. I know how long an article is. I know, you know, it's a page. It's, it's something that's ta beyond the tactility. It's it's graspable, like tangible. Yeah. How, what what am I looking at? And I think um, bit an, a bit more of an you know probably shit phrase, but analog experience. You know, yeah. like actual like yeah. a complete experience. Like read that at beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's something that everyone's getting to grips with with the digital yeah. age, isn't it? Yeah. Like how you can. Because, like you say, the magazine, like the the, the world that a magazine gives you, was it, I, I interviewed a, a skateboard um, magazine editor a couple of episodes ago, mm -hmm. and the feedback from that was incredible because it was really obvious from everybody that got into it so much they enjoyed it was that that's what they missed. They missed the idea that it was like 
a window onto a subculture that yeah. you that you were getting in your hands every month and yeah you can get that with a digital experience but not as readily i don't think it's just more like you say it's just more like a stream isn't it like an endless but stream I, yeah but i i do think that if you did work specifically against something being a stream then you could have at least a similar appreciation for someone else having compiled this specific content or produced specific like specifically for you and it's something you get you know once a month yeah and it's really you know it's it's the best and you know everything that has been pre-selected I don't know. I don't. I don't. I really. I don't really. Interesting idea, though. Yeah, you know, definitely. So, but you've I, been um, you've been snowboarding. You were saying a little bit. Yeah. 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 I, I. I mean, I think I was always. I never really from the actual activity. I'd. You still rode. Like, yeah, I still rode. I think there might have been a year or two where it had a. It had a weird. I'd almost say a negative vibe around it for you personally. For me personally, but more for the sake. Like more in terms of um, I think that I was so eager to go like to see what was next. Right. That going snowboarding felt like um, regressive. Yeah, kind of. You know, it felt like like shit. I should be. I should know what what's next, and I don't. And then going back to snowboarding, I couldn't enjoy the snowboarding. So, and I think. Um, not that I necessarily know what's next. I still don't. Yeah. But I think um, I've come to terms with it. And yeah. so I started enjoying snowboarding again. Um, and plus, I think um, I started enjoying or, or or like going on like really good snowboarding trips again. And, yeah. And, and Fun realized, trips. Yeah. You know. The good um, stuff. And so I think you can be as burnt out or as eager to move on but if you're like if you go to bald face or something <laughs> and you just sh- not going to take long before you're going to be like actually this is this uh, is you know and and so i mean <laughs> all right this. so never really had a, a huge dip in my appreciation for it but it's definitely it's it's um i have more fun snowboarding now much more i think than i i've had probably like three years ago is that one of the reasons that you sort of packed it in so early then because you were t- 27 28 were you yeah, is yeah, it about probably, that? Yeah, probably twenty. Yeah, probably twenty. Yeah, twenty-eight, twenty-nine. Yeah, I don't think it's kind of weird. People always say that, I'm like, yeah, you left at your peak, and I was like, no, man, I milked the shit out of it. <laughs> and w- that's what my that was impression your, was, right? Because um, I think maybe as early as like the second robot food film, I was like, wow, this is exactly what we did last year, you know? And so that's, that's so funny because the perception of that film to everybody else was. I think not that. Yeah. Know? But I mean, you look at it specifically like with the robot food films and the, you know, there's After Bang, Lame, and then there's After Lame. And Lame was like a polished, perfectionized version of After Bang. It's the exact same thing, you know, but we just got better at presenting it. And I think everyone felt that way, that, which is why also we changed it up really weird in the, in the third way, yeah. third year. And then going from there, I think I had, I, I really, I still had like, like ambitions to snowboard and do tricks and all this stuff, but I'd almost say at least half of my motivation in the following years, like when I did 91 Words and all this, was like making a film. Or they got do, more and more personal. They yeah. got more and more like, like it was following your, your own vision. That's what it seemed. Yeah. Like having, again, having an idea yeah. and thinking I can tell this story in this certain way. Yeah. And That's, I think just changing up for myself, you know, like, so yeah. you, oh, this is different. You know, like it's different trying to make a film about like a bunch of different snowboarders than just following myself around for, you know, so, so that was, um, and, and so to me, this kind of trying to change it up started very early. And then by the time... You know, I was, uh, you know, 28, so 2008 or so. I was pretty ready to, to like, kind of see what else was out there. Right, because I guess that was, would that have been 10, 10 years? Uh, 10 years ago, yeah. Uh, but the, the career, I mean, like, that you that Pretty you much, had. pretty much. I, I mean, think I, I first saw you ride Aaron Style, maybe, 99. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think 90, wait, hold on. When so. Stefan Gimple won. 
Yeah, was you that were the... young as well. You were like seventeen, and if, if I remember rightly. So yeah, I mean, uh, I finished school when I was nineteen. So that's when I always considered like that's when I turned pro. Right. Know? I mean, obviously, there's no such thing. There, no, there's no such like a harsh point as in skateboarding where someone else has to turn you pro. It's like you snowboard for most of the time. Then, yeah, you're probably yeah, yeah. pro. So um, and yeah, pretty, I didn't do pretty anything. low bar. Yeah, yeah, I didn't do anything else. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, you know? sure. I think, um, but as far as I mean, anything that, that led to that point is maybe part of the of a teenage career. Sure. I think I might have even... What was it? I think in 90... Yeah, it's probably right because in 98, I was, that was like a pivotal point where I think Aaron Style had... They tried to branch out and they did three contests. The big one in Innsbruck, then the one up at Seegrube, which was like a like a jump into a quarter pipe, like real snow, like an actual snowboard contest. And then they did the third one was in Munich, um, a quarter pipe contest indoor. They only did it one time. And so, of course, I mean, I wasn't invited to the Innsbruck one because I was basically a nobody, but I won the one up at Seegrube. And then because I think Jim Rippier, someone didn't show up to Munich, I got the local spot and I ended up winning. So I won two out of those three. So they were like, "All right." We so won. that's what got you into the yeah, next that, year at, invited, at, at, so at that's, Innsbruck. I think me and Gimple were like the the two that they invited um, to the to the big one. Yeah, because who was the I can't, I can't remember his name, the American rider Crawford, um, Andrew Crawford. Yeah, he was second. He was second, wasn't he? He gave. I remember because he because you did. If I remember rightly, you did like switch backside seven at that. Did you or something? Maybe, yeah, and, and basically, he was like all. Kind of going like Jesus, you know. Look at these, look at these kids. <laughs> yeah. You know? But so that so that was like the point where you started to think, okay, like you know, this is this could be a career. I think before that, no, way before that, really, way before that. Like yeah. I literally, I saw like Board with the World with Craig Kelly when I was twelve, and I was like, that's what I'm gonna do. I really, like, right. no doubt about it. So that that from that, okay, pretty that's, much, that's cool. Like, no, right. I was like fanatic, like absolutely ridiculously fanatic about it. Did you skate first? Uh, yeah, a little bit. But I mean, I think, um, I mean, definitely I started skateboarding when I was like seven or something, but it's not that, um, that I had certainly connected the two, you know, we, but, um, like, yeah, I wouldn't take like street cred as a skater. And then that, you know, <laughs> that, like, it's like, yeah, I also, you know, I skated and I didn't play tennis, but it would be as, as relevant. As, as relevant to yeah. my snowboarding almost. And, and, um, so it was you and your brother grew up snowboarding. Yeah. Boris. Yeah. And he's three years older. So I kind of, you know, I did everything that he did yeah. you know, just following and then he skated. And then, um, I think I got my first skateboard when I was six and my, f and I like his snowboard passed down to me when I was nine. Yeah. So I started snowboarding, like actual snowboarding when I was probably 10 in 1990. And then, um, and then, yeah, and then I think pretty, pretty quick, like I'd say, I mean, felt, felt, like, a, felt like a long time, but between the, that, but when we started and then it's pretty obvious that there was something like being sponsored and all these things and like writing contests and, and like that really picked up a lot of pace, like this whole subculture thing. And, yeah. And um, someone, uh, this, this like um, classic, sports journalist asked me like a year ago or so about like what um, made it attractive. And I realized when I, um, when I thought about it, I think it was snowboarding was for me part of the same, same bubble of American culture that like surrounded ET and BMX bikes. And, right. And to me that like, when I think about it back, like, I, like, that's really interesting. It's incredible how attractive that seemed to me. Like yeah. even now, like I'm almost like, like, like um, I, get, I get goosebumps when I think about the emotions that I can kind of reconnect when I think about like ET and like seeing like the first vert ramps and skaters and then snowboarders and there was like like that was it was so incredibly exciting like, right so that's what you were talking about like, almost like the exoticness of it yeah and I, I mean. <clears throat> I think anything from the US, like it felt like the promised land when I was like 10, 11, 12. Like it was ridiculous. That, where were you brought up? Here in Munich. In, in Munich. Yeah. Right. So why, why, why do you think it was so appealing? 
Um, I don't think it's particular. I don't think it was particularly like my. I would think it wasn't my particular environment or vicinity. I think that was German, West German culture. Probably even more East German culture. I could I could imagine that they sure. and for them it was even obviously more, even more exotic, even more promised yeah. land. But um, I mean, think about it. Like rap music, you know, like Chucks. Like I remember through friends of my parents getting a pair of Chucks from like sent from the US because I I wasn't able to get them in like size one or whatever I needed. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. You couldn't you could see it. You could see that culture, couldn't you? But yeah. like it wasn't readily available like it is now. Yeah. And, and, and you had to work at it, didn't you? To yeah. get it, to experience it. Yeah. And I think I I think it's just the 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 and it's really funny because I I, I encounter this type of um attractiveness a lot of times now in like brand work where it comes down to like mystification. If you're able to mystify whatever it is enough to where it seems like untangible in yeah. a way, it's yeah, yeah. that's if if something if too much information about something is available, it's not that interesting, you know. And so that was I don't, I, I think especially as a kid where you expect you know depth and miracles everywhere, you know. It's it's like you just see the codes and and all these things and you don't know what they mean, but it's incredibly exciting. And so to me, like, I don't know, I remember like like we everyone, all my friends, like every like optic store that we came across, we asked if they had like Oakley stickers. <laughs> like that's a like it was and and those were as valuable as like I don't even know today like you could give me a brand new MacBook Pro it would not even be close to the value of an Oakley sticker in 1991. Like, right, that's brilliant. It's and it's childish essentially, but it's awesome, you know. It's, but, I, I, but everyone can. I'm sure everyone listening to this is going to empathize with it. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it because it's a really recurring theme. Yeah. In, in in the podcast, like, and then, and I mean, and then we're back at you know growing up. I think the the pain of growing up is also like disillusion. Uh, I don't know how you could say that disillusioning yourself or yeah. whatever. Um, to where you realize that well, some of these mystified codes have no depth. There's nothing. There's only the shoe, and that's it. You know, or there's, and 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 me and my best friend were laughing about this the other day. Because we're, he was saying like, yeah, man, it's, uh, you know, he, sometimes he feels like he's like emotionally dull, you know, like compared to what he used to feel as a teenager. And, <laughs> and we came up with this, with this is hor- horrible, horribly sounding um, analogy, but we, we definitely laughed pretty hard because we, we remember we were at this competition in 92. This year mini. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if his wife is going to appreciate it this now, but I but, can, I can um, cut, cut his <laughs> no, name. If no, you he know he, he knows. We we were like I think he she'll know what 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 he meant. But we talked about the feeling that Burton had a booth there. We didn't, of course, we we had no sponsors and anything. Burton was the, the pinnacle of the culture, yeah, and probably still is. And they had a booth with next year's gear, which was like I mean that was like seeing into. <laughs> Yeah, it was literally, <laughs> and I remember that was the year where next year's boot was, do you remember the two-tongue boot? Yeah. Yeah, it was a boot with tongues on, on the lateral sides. Like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. And, they, and it was the second year, so it was, it was like, like wild leather, and the tongue was red. And it's literally like, even to, to this day, when I think about seeing the boot, it was like, it's almost like a sexual experience because it's like there's there's some there's some tactility and and it's and it re- represented everything you know the, this whole culture and 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 it's something from the future and and we talked about like he was saying like do you remember this boot and like and like, he had the same experience as well yeah i think so i think we yeah. even talked about this specific experience of of seeing this That's boot brilliant. seeing this boot and 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 he was saying like you know like if i if i try to think about my life today and what comes close to like the experience of seeing this boot, he was like, you know, maybe it's like the birth of my son. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're like, so, so wow, um, yeah. And 
And yeah, you know, this is like, I think, like when you when when I think back to this, like now, and actually, Minnie's Minnie's son is my godchild. It's like I can kind of like you you start empathizing a lot lot more with kids because, you know, if they throw a tantrum or if they're mad or if they're happy, I mean, of course they're trying to play you, but I think they're actually this happy. They're yeah. Actually, like, it's it's I think the emotional the 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 uh, curve. Your emotional curve as a kid is incredible. And, um, yeah. So did it live up to it when you, uh, when you made it over there? Because obviously you were lucky enough to, um, to spend... For, a, for, for, for the majority of the time it you, did. You know, pretty, not, relatively speaking, quite soon after, that was your life, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I did have a lot of these moments where, where these words suddenly met. Like, I remember probably in like 99 or something or 98, I was like on the, I was kind of like on the rookie roster at Salmon, but it was pretty clear that I was one of the guys who might make it to the pro roster. And I went to the SPC camp in Hintertooks and it was Salmon week. And I checked into the hotel and it's like, oh, the the, the receptionist looked at the list. She's like, Benedict, Benedict, oh, Benedict, you are rooming with Jason Ford. (laughs) And to me, yeah, you were like, it was, it was like literally, Jason Ford meant the guy with blonde hair and scream of consciousness who did this powder and then he made this this get gesture with his hand that was like cutting the fill. I don't know where it it was ridiculous that that was an actual person that I was going to be spending you know like this is, and this I mean I was 18 you know and it's yeah, still yeah. so strong so I think for a long time uh this was still like really um valid and and alive this uh mystif- mystified this world. wonder it sounds yeah. a wonder is what yeah. you're describing yeah basically yeah. yeah and um you know and then and i think at some point um it did feel i have to say it did feel like you climb like a long ladder into this into the into the clouds because that's where you want to go and you get to the top and there's nothing there like i certainly had that at you know maybe third year of robot food and and you know maybe like suddenly like knowing you know peter line jp walker like not that i'm good friends with those guys but i i got to know them and they started being real people and i mean yoni malmi filmed with us so suddenly some of the people that i still that they were kind of ahead of this uh of me in my like snowboarding career they were already up there when I was still feeling like I was way uh, further down, looking up at the clouds. So, so for instance, Yoni Malmi was definitely part of this world that I had looked up to, and then, then like you know, spending like a season with him um, definitely like um, makes it very, very tangible. And like, and the mystification is just that it's a normal person, you yeah. Know? And um, and also, I think. The very, I mean, funny realization that people who really push trends don't necessarily know what those codes specifically mean. You know, they only grab them from somewhere and then they distribute them. But I think I'd certainly at a point where there was kind of like a stale realization that it's kind of all smoke and mirrors. Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I, was that and disillusioning? Totally. Right. Absolutely. Must, and, I mean, it must have been. And, and to this is point... That, is that, will that always happen, though, do you think? Is that just a natural probably thing that will, that will happen? Because everyone experience. I mean, I, I'm not, I've never been in your position, but people I've spoken to who have definitely seem to exp- reach this level of disillusionment. Yeah. You know, maybe it's... Do you think it's inevitable? <laughs> It might be, and I'm, I'm kind of, I think it also depends on what happened, like what is that specific culture? Yeah. What happens at the top and is there something that leads from there to somewhere else? You know, I think um, I could imagine if you are incredibly excited about, um, you know, Hollywood and actors and celebrities and film, and you end up, you know, you become a director and that's all you want, 
then I'm sure, of course, at some point, if you did reach the top, you would think like, oh, this is, it's, you know, it's very um, banal. Um, but I could see that you find like, like that culture for, or that uh, discipline, for instance, filmmaking, has v very different ways of still being able to keep that illusion going more yeah. than say sports exactly so yeah I th but I, but generally i would probably say yeah it's it's inevitable I did, think. so did you find it hard when you or was it or was it was it um it's such yeah. a it's such a funny question after that but yeah or, or were you relieved no i found it hard i think you did i think i mean not hard in the sense like oh what am i gonna do but what am i gonna do now but but more in the sense that And then we're back at growing up. It's like, wow, if if this is hollow, then what else is hollow? And then suddenly, so I certainly think that the kind of cynical person I am, I'm certainly a little cynical and a little misanthropic. And I, I think that's probably stems from not believing in illusions very much anymore that, from that experience maybe I think so yeah. really right you know and, and and but it also i mean it has its upside too because i don't really get freaked out by too much anymore you know i see i i would you know i think um i could be in a very um authoritarian situation let's say you know with ceos or whatever and I don't have to, f I wouldn't have to fight this situation, but I wouldn't have to uh, like bow down to it either. I would try, I think I, I like seeing this disillusionment once kind of makes you look at, makes you look at all the other possible illusions um, equally skeptical. And I think that is in itself a little bit of a peace of mind, you know, that you can just, you can kind of think like, yeah, you know, we're all just trying to wing it everyone you know and it's it's definitely would be nice if that wasn't the case but I'm yeah so it kind of take it's almost like you're taking the pressure off yourself yeah if you if you kind of yeah. at peace with it yeah yeah wow so what are you <laughs> so what are you um that that uh spark sense of wonder if you like what where do you get that now you, you mentioned sometimes you get it in the work you know can you still find it in snowboarding? Um, I can find it in... I can find it in the physical flow which also snowboarding can create. Um, can you also get that from work? That's a very good question. I doubt it, actually. Because... Because it's, um, I had this moment like a year ago. I went to, actually, you might know the band No Twist. I went to their concert. They're from Munich or from the outskirts of Munich. Yeah, they're on your films, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd actually never, never, never met him until recently. I met the drummer, um, but I went to their concert a year ago, and just and I watched the drummer on a solo, how he just you know totally like seemed like he forgot the world around him and I looked at this and I'm like that's like that's flow you know, like that's when you know there's there's nothing else it's just that and there's also no there's no ego there's no rationality there's nothing and I think that really is only possible in like sports music maybe that's it sex but I'm just kind of the same. I think something that's a physical, a physical thing a physical that like, connects to something very um, primal, maybe even. Yeah. And so, in that sense, if you ask me, do I get the spark? That's one spark that I can get from snowboarding. It's like you ride down somewhere, and the intuitiveness of doing that, I think, is absolutely incredible. And I'm a great, I like, as much as I'm skeptical about the quality of the human being, I'm pretty amazed um, of nature and 
the, the miracle that we live in. So kind of almost the more, the, the more a primal a human being can be, the more I can almost appreciate it. I mean, the moment momentarily, of yeah, course, you know, I understand. so, so, so when, when I, when I see these moments, I'm like, I feel like we have a place, you know, we, like we, we have a quality because everything else is so amateurish, you know, our thinking and our everything. <laughs> I mean, we're just, we're just like these, like these bags of patheticness, you know, walking around and like trying to communicate. And then, and we all, you know, we're all in pain because of something. And, then, you know, it's, it's such a, like, it's a, such a, such a tragic comedy, the world, you know, like it could be so good, but we just like, and, and this kind of saves me from becoming a complete, like, um, like cynicist is, uh, is like that, that's possible. You those know, moments are still possible. That, those moments are possible. And, and, um, yeah. So I, I do, I do see that in snowboarding. Yeah. What, so what, it's a general question really, but it's kind of related to what we're talking about. What, what is inspiring you right now? Um, uh, journalism is really yeah that's interesting yeah just because i think it's uh, i don't know it's like uh, then we're at the maybe uh, where the world's heading i think like kind of um kind of standing up for the for the right values and 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 also debate i think like that's something i'm and i'm like i don't know also the 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 painfulness of communication like with people that have different opinions like and and i think journalism there's something very like uh altruistic about it that it's really like it it's necessary we need you know more than ever right now more than ever and and it's something i i really appreciate the effort that people put into this as opposed to uh recuperating opinion yeah you know like actually trying to i don't know have an objective point as much as that's possible yeah and uh, and so i'm 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 inspired by people who know stuff like and who have that attitude um yeah are we doing wow that was an hour it's gone pretty quick that was quick yeah so where's uh where's the next riding you said you did. Uh, you were riding the other day, right? Where, where were you riding? Uh, you rode you did, in Kitzbühel. Did a front three days ago. Did a front seven. Did a front seven. How's yeah. that? Um, it's pretty hilarious because. Um, so I was riding with Minnie, my old friend, yeah. and we both. I mean, he has two kids, so he rode less than I did in the past ten, uh, five years. But uh, we we both kind of like push each other to do like little you know five forties and like it's like ten foot jumps. Yeah, yeah. Um, and surprisingly, like the muscle memory is still there to do that. Yeah. And then, the very end of the day, there's one little bigger jump, and I was like, come on, let's we should try front set sevens. We <laughs> we know. I mean, we could do you know we can do those. And I was so thrilled, like physically thrilled when I landed, that like. The, almost like the blood shot to my head that I almost fainted like on the ride out. Wow. <laughs> I, like, I had to like inhale to like not just like faint on my, in in the landing. But yeah, it was, uh, considering it was like a 10 foot 720. Yeah. The, the, the rush was probably like hitting like Chad's gap or something. Amazing. Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, and are you going to be doing, you got any more trips, anything this winter? Um, I'm actually going to Chatter Creek uh, for five days in March, in March. Nice. With a couple, couple friends like, um, and a couple of people I don't know, um, and but yeah, I realized uh, it's kind of it's kind of worth it to spend a little extra and go to those places where you kind of get it out of your system. You know, those four days in on one of those lodges. That's kind of what I'm thinking these days. It's like go go less and do do more. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Go to Japan every exactly. two every two years. Yeah, that's kind of and and uh, that's. That's kind of what I want to do is like find a way to also be able to afford that to maybe, you know, go every other year, do something like that. Yeah. And then don't stress, not stress about every mediocre day. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I'm pretty excited about that, actually. Nice. Yeah. Well, enjoy. Yeah. Thanks. And, and David, that's I mean, that's been brilliant. Um, thanks for coming on, man. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. No worries. So there you go. That was my chat with David Benedict. And yeah, how good was that? 
such a brilliant conversation. I've got to say, I was praying I didn't do a Stentiford and lose the damn thing. But thankfully, no. And what an amazing perspective uh, David's got. And it's a shame that the tape stopped when, when it did, really, because we carried on chatting for a good hour afterwards, which I probably could have done as a part two, to be honest. But yeah, we just we just carried on catching up, really. Went and had a coffee. And uh, yeah, great to see him. Great to hear from him. And I think you'll agree. Interesting fella. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. So it's been a while since we've had Feedback Corner. And I do have to say, I continue to be blown away by the response to the podcast. I know I mention this every week, but we've really leapt up a level in terms of listeners in the last few weeks. And the broad church that is looking sideways listenership continues to expand into ever more random corners of the globe. And uh, I also wanted to read out a bit of an email I got from a listener the other week, which has really humbled me, to be honest. Now, it is a bit of a Mark Maron move, this. And I hope you can forgive me. Um, But it's been a while since we had Feedback Corner, as I say. So yeah, I thought I'd read some of this one out. Dear Matt, firstly, let me say how glad I am that I found your podcasts. My mate had just taken a six shot of Ben Skinner at Porth Levin, which got me looking online and I found my way here. I've been a lost soul for a number of years and I'm currently going through a journey of healing. Your podcasts have given me part of the solution to that puzzle. When I'm spiraling and getting angsty, angry or down, I can plug in, listen and allow my mind to break. The stories you cover and the inspirational topics keep me engaged when nothing else will, which is impressive, as usually I cannot shut my mind up, which is always doing its own thing. It's helping keep me from falling down that dark hole again. So thanks for that. And not only that, but you and your guests are helping me fill in the blanks I've been struggling with in my life. You've got me out riding again on my local hour drive dry slope. It may have taken me 20 minutes to get out of the car first time due to anxiety, but I did it and now I'm riding every freestyle night I can. I've even got a training board at home and I'm really working on my rail game. Every time I listen, I come away more motivated to live my life in a way that makes me happy and I can feel the fight growing within me again. I used to never stop and then for a few years I couldn't get going, even when I wanted to, and that's changing now. In particular, I find the the last podcast with James Stentiford to be very close to home. I felt a lot of similarities to James, yet he was able to make some calls that I couldn't. So going to take on some of the Silverback's advice as well as some of the other guests and see where it takes me. Thanks again for helping change lives. Wow. Firstly, thanks so much for sending that in. You know who you are. I'm not going to say your name because I I don't think that would be too fair really. But um, yeah, obviously I was massively moved by that and this is really not my style as friends of mine will attest but I have to say that's basically made the last 11 months of doing this extremely worthwhile as I've said more than a few times I'm just doing this in my spare time really so to hear that people are enjoying it so much and getting so much out of it as this listener evidently is really is amazing so thanks man thanks for sharing that story with me thanks for giving me permission to read it out on the show stay in touch and yeah um Hope you enjoyed this one. Elsewhere, I've got a bit of a favour to ask, actually. So I note that The Guardian are running a podcast column. Each week, they're asking uh, people to recommend their favourite podcast. Now that I've cracked over 100 five-star reviews on iTunes, and we've established that the new and noteworthy Wheeze on there is a crock of shit, perhaps I could ask the great Looking Sideways listenership to recommend me to this resource. As with all these requests, more listeners means more of these podcasts, which more and more of you seem to be enjoying. So as an effort to enjoyment ratio, I think asking you to email The Guardian and recommend this is a pretty good deal, really. So yeah, if anyone fancies it, you can find the email on The Guardian site and uh, let's see if we can do it. All right, that's enough absolute yibble from me for another episode. Thank you once again to David Benedict for coming on the show. Thanks to you all for listening and uh, yeah, I'll see you next time. Nice one. (laughs) 